Let's drop the green flag on this episode of the Talent Tank Podcast with your host, Wyatt Pemberton, bringing you the best, fastest, most knowledgeable personalities in Ultra 4 and off-road racing. Hey, it's Wyatt. Yes, asking for your help. If you like the show and enjoy the content, please hit the five-star rating on Apple Podcast or on Stitcher. Please consider writing a quick review on the Talent Tank Facebook page, on YouTube, and absolutely on Apple Podcasts. And consider joining the discussions in the Talent Tank Insiders group on Facebook. All right, let's get to it. All right, here we go. Welcome back. It's mid-December. This is episode 12, one of two parts of episode 12. It's going to be the Tribe 4x4 show. We've got Matt Howell in the house with uh, with me. You got him, What's up, uh, Wyatt? Yeah, man, I'm I'm pretty pumped about this. So <laughs> I'm kind of laughing right now because right before we record, we do like a little bit of a lull, like a 10 second lull to get background noise. So then I can use that to process. And as soon as we went to the 10 second lull, there's a choo choo train. There's a locomotive just <laughs> ripping the horn behind uh, your office. And it's like, yeah, they've got a stop over here now. And uh, I guess a lot of people ride it to and from work. It's all passenger train. It's not even cargo or anything. And so it happens to be just across the highway. So I can't hear any cars or anything from the road in the trucks, uh, maybe a little bit during the day, but not really. And uh, when they stop for the, the people, they honk it. And it's, I don't know, they almost play a song. It's pretty funny, actually. You know, you I, heard of the intermediate. It's like multiple toot, toot, toot. Yeah. Uh, that's an interesting yeah. way to start. Well, luckily, we, we started after that, but everyone has to hear the, the hassle of me laughing about it and kind of <laughs> explain it. Oh, man, Matt. Matt Howell, Fort Worth, Texas, co-owner of Tribe 4x4. He's a three-time 4,500 national champion. 4500 class. We're going to talk about that class and what you've, you've killed it in that class. Was that 16, 17 and 18? Were those your natty championships? You guys took off 19, uh, basically to do some work with tribe and, uh, move them into their new digs and expand that business. And you guys just did that. You guys just this past weekend had a, had a little party there, a little shindig. We're going to talk about that, but, uh, man, thank you for being on. The second Man, thanks, time. <laughs> thanks for having, yeah, no, thanks for having me. I mean, uh, we were pretty flattered when you first called and you're, Hey, what do you think of this? I think he even texted at first just saying, Hey, you got a minute? And, and we talked and, uh, uh, yeah, I didn't know how to tell you that I was, uh, doing a backflip in the background. Like, heck yeah, man, this is going to be fun. That'd be cool. So, well, yeah, you were, you were actually in Florida doing a, the most ridiculous race I've ever heard of on a bicycle. I mean, there's some ridiculous races, but this one's pretty bad. It was called the what? It's called the Horrible Hundred. And uh, I grew up in Florida, uh, a buddy that I've known, best friend, you know, forever, uh, since fifth grade, um, Eric Clayton, where he, he is been talking about doing this ride and he and his buddies do it and they train hard and they ride fast. And we joke cause they're a bunch of flatlanders, you know, Florida has no topography. And, uh, he was, he would give me a hard time. He'd come out here and we'd ride and he'd realize that we have topography, you know, not a lot, nothing, we're not Colorado, but we have enough to, to put a pen, you know, hurt on you on the bike and, uh. Uh, he kind of called me out and said something about doing the horrible hundred and how they were going to do it. And so I did, I went out and did it with them and there's, uh, over a hundred miles, one sitting, we do a hundred mile ride and there is, uh, like 5,000 feet of elevation gain in this, in this ride. Which is insane. It's like, are you guys going up and down over the same overpass or the same landfill pile? Yeah. It's funny you say that. That's how they train. So where Eric lives, they have, it's just flat. And so they have to go do 
bridge repeats. They go over the bridge, they ride over the bridge and then do the exit and come back around and enter this other side of the bridge and go over the bridge. And I guess it's an overpass or maybe it's over a body of water. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but that's how they train for hills. And that's all they can really do other than putting, you know, get in the truck and go someplace else for the weekend. But now out there, there's a lot of flat, but then there's a, it just seems like you were always on a gradual ascent or descent. And then, uh, then they had some, a couple serious hills that were, that were absolutely no joke. You know, we have one out here called Roanoke Hill near us. And, uh, most of the time my loop, my benchmark loop is only, uh, 23 miles and I'll go down it. I'll go the direction where I go down that hill. Now there's some rollers in front of it and there's some rollers behind it and it's a hard ride. Uh, but that one hill, I think it's the 12 or 13% at the very top, which is, which is a lot. And they had one, oh man, I can't remember it. Uh, anyway, they, they had one where it had to be, I don't even know, it was solid double digit, 15, 16%. It was, it was painful. And you don't want to put your foot down because if you stop, you're not sure how you're going to get the bike going again. I was, I've never ridden my bike in the lowest gear I've got on my bike. I always do it in the big ring and I was in the, the small ring up front and lowest gear the bike had. And I think I was going, five miles an hour, four miles an hour and giving it all I had. So I don't envy that at all. I I'll drive there. (laughs) (laughs) It's fun. So, you know, it's funny, Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Middlebrook is my business partner at tenant build. And, um, uh, he's also a partner in, in tribe, a good friend of mine. And, uh, he and I were talking about finding enjoyment in the suck and we were eating lunch today. And I don't remember where I picked that up. Somebody told me that and, and uh, it has stuck with me. And we were talking about what you can relate that to or how you apply that. And on the bike, I can absolutely apply it. You know, that's what I love about riding the bike is, you know, you get in there and, and even going out to the horrible hundred. I told all those guys, I was like, hey, I haven't really been training like you guys. The first 60 I got, I'm not even worried about that. The next 10 I'm questioning. And then the final 20, you're going to have to find enjoyment in the suck. That's where your body doesn't want to do it anymore. You're checking out. And you can relate that to a lot of things. And Jimmy and I are comparing it. He's a, a very successful softball coach, select softball coach for his daughters. And he was talking about how he applies that same logic into that. And, you know, you can do it to racing. You know, everybody here knows something about racing. And uh, just daily in your daily life and your daily work, when yeah. your boss calls you into the office for a constructive criticism review, and it's how you how you take that constructive criticism, right? It's it is the suck. But it's what you do with it and where you get mentally by it. That's it. Well, and I think I think sometimes finding the enjoyment in the suck is figuring out how to how to find accomplishment from it. You know, to your point, if you have somebody giving you some constructive criticism or positive feedback or even negative feedback, you know, how do you take that and apply it so that you don't get that anymore? No, I, yeah, absolutely. I think that's I, I, I think every day I try to wake up and make today better than it was make myself today better than I was yesterday. And you try to do that every single day. And hopefully by the end of your life, you've made something out of it. But there's, there's a whole billion days in there that are setbacks where you woke up with the best of intentions. They just didn't kind of work out for you. So that's right. you're constantly having to train your mind. And I think that's what you're going into is just training your mind is, well, let's talk about, you know, going to King of the Hammers, anyone who wants to strap their self into a paint shaker for 12 hours, it could be a hundred degrees, um, or it could be 30 degrees and raining or snowing or sleeting or whatever. And yeah, you have to embrace the suck. And there's a reason why you're embracing it. It's for the glory. I mean, yeah. you're doing it for the glory. It's yeah, the, absolutely. You may be out there to drink beer with your friends, but for those moments you're in the car, it's, it's just, it's you. It's, yep. it's the race against you and what's in your head and putting your best self forward and overcoming and 
Absolutely. And everybody approaches it a different way. So, you know, I mean, some people like the desert better than the rocks and some people like the rocks better than the desert. And we we always come at it from a very strategic approach, you know, and I want to as much information as I can get is what I want. But I don't want it while I'm driving. So when we pull in for pit, that's where usually you see Lance Gilbert standing on the driver's side of the uh, the car and he's talking into the mic and I'm just sitting there listening. And there's been a bunch of pictures that, we, that they're our favorites, actually. Uh, Lance and I's favorites, but I'm looking straight ahead and I'll push the button and ask them a couple of questions if there's something that, you know, I'm curious about or whatever. But yeah, it's, you know, it's the strategic approach for us and everybody has whatever they like about the race or what they don't like about the race. And, and you got to figure out how to overcome all of it. It's a, it's a hard race and it's a long day. I think that's one of the biggest things that most people, maybe that if you're not involved in racing, one of the questions that you'll get is, you know, how long are you there? And you're like, well, if I'm having a really good day, it's eight hours. And they look at you like you're crazy. You know, you're sitting in the car for eight hours. I'm like, yeah, hopefully we don't have to get out we don't you know everything's just perfect <laughs> and it's not a 70 mile an hour interstate with no stops you know except no. for for fuel it's it's banging it's a wreck yeah it's eight hours of crashing but i mean anyone can leave the start line and quit right yeah that's that's available to everybody yeah you can you can pull across the start line pull off and quit or you can pull off and quit at mile 50 or mile 150 it's the guys that don't have quit in them and they've well, but also, I mean, it's also some equipment, but I'm going to say a lot of it's mental. And Yeah, absolutely. And, and if you have a do not quit mentality, and there are guys that are race out there that have the don't quit under any circumstances, even if it's mechanical, they're still, they will not throw in the towel. And yeah. man, God bless them. I love to cheer for them. I, I, there's points where I'm just like, nope, we're done. I'm I'm, I'm out. I'm exactly with you. That's that's something that Adam has taught me and Lance, a lot of those guys, uh, the circle, I guess, that uh, helped our learning curve or my learning curve very make it very sharp was, you know, those guys are always like something breaks and I'm like, man, we must be done. And then suddenly somebody would be like, no, you just do this and this and we're going to do this and let's go get a welder and let's put, you know, and the next thing you know, you're right back in it and you're like, wow, okay. Well, I know we dove, we went right off the deep end like immediately. So I'm going to have to reel us back here just for a second. So guys, again, Matt Howell, Tribe 4x4. He's a Florida guy, but he lives in Fort Worth. And you've lived in Fort Worth since you were in high school. You've got yep. an amazing wife, some kids. We're going to talk some boys. We're going to talk about them. Like I said, partner at Tribe 4x4. We've got you on the show here. You're a three-time Natty champion. What are you going to do to win King of the Hammers? Because you haven't yet. What are you going to do, Matt Howe? Yeah, so, uh, you know, we've got a second place finish there. We've got a third place finish there. Um, and, and it's, it's very difficult knowing the race to sit back and say, there's only one thing we're going for. I mean, everybody goes to, for their own goals. Some people go to finish. Some people go to accomplish different things. And there's a lot of people that go to win. You know, they just want to win. So, uh, it's, it's, I've never really gone into that race and said, we're going to win. But we've also historically always gone for uh, for a championship. So we just want to place really well. If we can get on the podium, we're happy. If we could be top five in our class, you know, and, and set up the season, uh, we'll figure it out throughout the season. It's about being steady and consistent and, and just being uh, just being competitive. And uh, but that's not what we want anymore. <laughs> that's hard to say. You know, like checked all those boxes. Checked yeah, those boxes. we've been there. So there's one thing we can't seem to grab. And and. Uh, we really went for it this year um, in February, and, and we had a great plan and a great strategy, and we had a lot of guys doing a lot of the right things where we knew who was where and what to do and uh, pushed the car probably as hard as we've ever pushed it, if not harder, especially in the desert section. We qualified 12th overall, uh, had Dustin Friesen in front of us, and you know you know how the race works where you don't have to pass him. You just have to go catch him, and uh, we pulled into remote one. I'm probably getting ahead of myself. Sorry, Wyatt, but we oh, pulled into 
roll. Remote remote one, and uh, uh, he was parked there. And I can remember, I don't ever talk on the mic. That's always Adam on the mic. And I, I hit the button, and I was like, two gallons, two gallons, just enough to get back. You know, we've got to pull out first. Because then it becomes a head game. You know, then you're in somebody's head that, damn, you know, the way it works on me. You know, long long story short, we lost a training uh, in two rock sections left, lost the training, and, and had to had to call it. We only had third gear, no reverse, no first, no second. And so we had to call it and came back. And uh, I was honestly kind of satisfied with our effort because we we had it. We were killing it. All we had to do is keep the car together. I mean, our Lance and I's chat in the uh, uh, main pit area when uh, we were talking, he's like, you guys are killing it. You guys are on it. I'm like, yeah, but there's a lot of gremlins, man. This is this is a race that'll get you and you don't even know where it's going to get you at. And I was like, let's just not count it yet. And sure enough, man, it's a, we've never had a transmission problem. And here we are. Yeah, right. Uh, it's, I mean, at least it wasn't like a, a 30 cent seal or something that, that got you or a fuse that popped and took you out. Those stories yeah, are- yeah, that's definitely true. Adam opened it up and he sent me a picture of it and there was a lot of uh, shiny bits hanging around. I'm not yeah playing yeah exactly it was bad it was bad so anyway to answer your question i'm not sure exactly what we're going to do this year uh i'm not you know i I don't know exactly what our strategy is it's always the same um but it's modified you know but uh that we were talking about that recently too i don't i don't like to qualify first uh because i don't like to be the rabbit you know i'd prefer well let's talk let's let's can this uh whole discussion (laughs) and debate because if there's one thing that i love is race strategy I that I mean I'm totally thrilled by that. I mean I like that almost as much as uh, helmet time. But we're yeah. gonna, we'll get into that way at the end, right before we uh, we sign off. So Matt, Florida. Where in Florida did you grow up? Uh, mostly lived in Neptune Beach, Florida. That was most of my life. So I was uh, uh, jokingly a shell's throw from the the ocean. We weren't beachfront, but we were the block that was beachfront. We were right off the ocean. Lived there most of the time. It's kind of laid back back there. Fastest street uh, where I lived was 35 miles an hour, and it's called Third Street. But if you take it south far enough, it turns into A1A. It's where A1A starts in Atlantic Beach. And then the other end of A1A is Key West. That's it. And then somewhere, All the way in, the, down. And somewhere in the middle is uh, is Vanilla Ice. I was going to say the same thing, Beachfront Avenue or something. <laughs> somewhere in there, right? Was it sophomore, junior, senior year? You end up in Texas. Your dad took a job. In Fort Worth. Yeah, so uh, we were a Radio Shack family for a long time back when Charles Tandy started that company. And a lot of those guys grew up within the company together, and uh, and it was just networking, really. But they helped promote each other within the company. And uh, my dad had left the company, started his own company in Florida at the beaches, and uh, was doing fine. Everything's great there. But he came back to visit a friend of his that was part of Intertan at the time, which ran like Radio Shacks in overseas. And they were in Australia for like three years. So they came back and they're really good friends of my parents. And so they came back to Fort Worth to visit them for a trip. And uh, he got offered a job while he was here. And it was my junior year. And they came back and they left it. uh, My mom and dad left it strictly up to Dan and I, my brother and I. And, uh, you know, uh, that, that's a tough one because we had lived in our house. We moved a lot prior, but, uh, we had lived there at that house, that beach house for seven years and had, you know, kind of a community around us and you have all your friends and clearly I was a junior in high school. So you have your high school friends and whatnot, but, uh, we said, yeah, let's go and went with the, uh, the, the thought that I could always come back. Whereas this is a good move for him. And, and, uh, so we, we took the move and you've been in Texas ever since. Yeah. 93 graduated in 93 and, uh, Quickly tried to get back to Florida, but uh, I, I didn't. I didn't. It didn't stick. It didn't <laughs> I had stick. to come back. <laughs> yeah. Which knowing you, and here's, I guess here's the connecting the dot for everybody else. Um, 
I haven't known you all that long, though I have, you know, vacation with you a bit and some, some, I, you know, your sure. wife Rhonda, she's amazing. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of my take on how I ended up in Texas was I came down here for work right after college and, uh, my thought was to go back to Kansas where I was from and met a woman. Most people know that my wife, Tiffany, she's, uh, she's kind of the person behind the scenes that makes sure I keep this ball rolling. But, uh, you end up with, uh, you end up, you know, there, you're there in Texas and you go to high school and then you've met Rhonda. Yeah. I met Rhonda while I was here. Um, in fact, I, uh, I think it was a summer somewhere. Um, I had gotten a job. I had a couple of jobs simultaneously and I'd gotten a job at Sam's club and, uh, I had a Jeep an old CJ seven, a 79 CJ seven and it needed tires. And that was the very first thing I did when I got this job. I don't think I worked any hours yet, but once I was employed, I went and got tires at Sam's club and I went through the line with, uh, four tires and my buddy Greg had a carton of cigarettes. And, uh, to this day, my wife will remind me that she thought Greg was the cute one. Cause that was her line we went through. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, we met at Sam's club. I ended up working there and, um, I was a cart guy for a while and pushed carts and then ended up being a cashier. Um, and I've always been competitive and they had like, uh, rings per minute or something like that. And, you know, how, how fast you could get a customer through the, the aisle. And, uh, she was always pretty quick, but she was always, always, uh, second place on the, on the leaderboard at the end of the week when they posted that up. So that was always fun too. I mean, that was, there's literally a movie made about that, right? Dane, Is there? Dane Cook and, uh, uh, S- Jessica Simpson, right? They work at the, the big lots or the big buy or whatever it is, you know. I'll have to go look it up. I haven't seen it. I really oh, yeah, haven't. And there's the total competition about who who can be the the fastest checker. That's it. Yeah. That was, oh yeah. At a at a you know a big box store. Oh yeah. It's well, my wife will tell you I cheated because you know they have people that buy cartons of cigarettes for like the convenience stores or something, and uh, I was on the express lane and so is she. But his, there's cartons of cigarettes were only ten skews. Now there might have been like two hundred items, but they're ten skews. So. If I'm making it up, I don't know how many cartons fit in a case, but the cases were all open. So I just hit 10 and scan one and then onto the next box. And man, I could, I could whip that thing through and she'd get so pissed off because I was getting a lot of rings per minute for the day. And it was these damn flatbeds of cigarettes. Man, that's, that is hilarious. <laughs> and see, the whole time I've known you, I've had until this interview, knowing you like recognizing your face, you have this notorious, uh, this beard, you're highly recognizable out there, but I had always believed that you were younger than me by like a, a good clip is what I thought. I thought maybe, maybe you were just starting to get into your, li- just after your mid thirties and come to find out you're actually older than me. I'm like, God, <laughs> sorry. I don't, I don't maybe, know. I, I know I don't look that young. So uh, it's, it's oily skin. I got really oily skin. So but yeah, so if anyone doesn't know Matt Howe, you need to look look him up. He, he, he will have his uh, social media page and Instagram and Facebook. I'll have them all uh, in the, the the description for this show. But you got to look him up. He he has this notorious beard. And there's actually quite a story behind the beard, which I think is is quite awesome. We'll, but we're going to tell that <laughs> in a little bit because that comes into play when we're talking about his company, Tenant Build. But so you end up meeting Ron at this big box store. That's, yep. that's funny now, now knowing her and she came on, uh, social media the other day and decided, and as, from what I know about Rhonda, she's this photographer, just aspiring, just killing it with these, you know, like night sky photos and, uh, and storms and gosh, I mean, she does some, some, uh, wild, wild is uh, wildlife's not the right word for it. Landscape stuff, but yeah. in, in the wild, like, uh, she, I, she started it. 
Yeah, no, you got it. You're exactly right. She started it. She just wanted to do it as a hobby and actually went to school for it for a little bit just to get uh, uh, get the basics kind of underneath her. And it has just taken off for her. She loves it. She she has so much fun for it. She has zero desire to do it professionally. Uh, but she loves taking pictures of the racers or we'll be out in New Mexico or something. And that's where she's getting some of that night sky stuff and uh, over the cabins. And it, she she's actually very, very good at it. She's picked it up and really taken off. In my house, we have a picture taken by Rhonda hanging up in our house. I love it. Yeah. That's awesome. That's, uh, exactly. It's, um, I don't even know what island it is. We were on some island somewhere. Uh, we, we hopped uh, them pretty quick. Yeah, a, a bunch of them. Uh, what was the one where we took four-wheelers around the island? Was that uh, Man. north of St. Martin? What's the island north of St. Martin that starts with an A? I don't know. There's probably a bunch of people yelling at us right now, telling us what it is. I don't remember them. It, um, exactly. I remember we we anchored in Road Bay for a couple nights, yep. and uh, I remember the anchorage, but I don't remember the name of the island. There was the we watched. Dave Cole had the NBC Sports shows before they aired. They were going to air sometime in December, and yeah. we watched. Man, you know what? That's three years ago. Right now, that's three years ago. This week, I actually yep. saw the updates on that. So three years ago, we were. Sailing down there. Um, we, we watched that on the beach. On Remember the, that? Yeah, no, it was, um, it was amazing. Like, and yeah. Dave's like, no one is going to see this. You can't even talk about this, but we're watching it right now because I have them. And yeah, to yeah, set the scene, I mean, they had, it was at night and it was, we had, uh, I don't think we were supposed to beach the dinghies, but we all went in like we were Navy SEALs, uh, or at least some of them did. And, and then they had that bar that was a boat that was, uh, buried in the sand. And that's where you'd go to get drinks or food or whatever. And then they had these chairs or benches or whatever set up in a white screen at night with a projector. And we watched that. That was that was a good time. That was a lot of fun. Oh, no, absolutely. We need to do that again. And and yeah, there's I'm guys ready. down there right now, and they're going to hear this when they get back. It's like Chip McLaughlin and mm-hmm. Doug Jackson and Clay Gilstrap. Okay, it's mostly retired racers, <laughs> but <laughs> they all got started from Ultra 4, guys. Chris Shaw's down there with Maxis. Yep. He's, uh, he's having a good time. I'm really cool to see that. Guys that have uh, you know been invited and end up down there on those trips, and this now makes it more people I'm more comfortable going going sailing with. I love it. It's cool. Wow, it's a got, fun time. We got totally sidetracked on that talking about Rhonda Rhonda's photography, but no, she uh, she recently took a job working at Starbucks because she wanted her own money. She did. She's crazy. Um, well, I, I don't know if it was completely. It was funny. Is I don't know if it was completely her own money. It was the conversation was, and we, you know, we were over a bottle of wine sitting one night. It was, it was like ten o'clock one night, and the boys were going to go work that summer, and they didn't want to travel as much during the summer. So this is like kind of our first summer where they're old enough to where they're mobile and doing their own thing, and we were going to be home a lot more for the summer. And she was like, "Well, if they're going to go work, I'm going to go work." I'm like, "You're going to go work?" You know? Yeah. She's like, "Yeah." And I was like, "All right, where are you going to work?" And we kind of talked back and forth. And I was like, "You should apply at Starbucks." There's like one of, there's like six within, yeah, there's, there's like six within, you know, a couple miles of our house and different directions and, uh, you're responsible. And I bet, I bet you're a shoe in. She, she applied that night and I think she had a call like the next day or the day after. And, uh, and she pulls like the 4 a.m. shift. That's what, that's what she liked about it. Yeah. Cause she could, she'll be done with her day. She's in the gym by noon. You know, she's done with her day. And she, so she posts this on Facebook and I laughed. I thought she was joking. Like, and I really feel bad about this. Like now, like in retrospect, I'm like, man, why it's an ass. That's the way, <laughs> the way my post, like nah. looking back, I was like waiting for the other shooter drop. Like her be like, I'm not getting up at 4 a.m. You clowns. And no, it couldn't be more wrong. Proud of her. That's cool. Uh, yeah. sometimes you got to challenge yourself with from the wildest ends of the universe. And well, now. She's going to learn to be a barista, or she has learned already. She's probably mastered oh, yeah. it at this point. So now she you're has. on the winning end of that. 
Yes, it's it's really well. It's good and bad because we have a lot of coffee gadgets at our house now. You know, you have to do pour over. You got to do. And I don't even know what they are. I mean, I've I've just gotten to a point where I don't use the Keurig anymore. Um, we're yeah, back to Keurig's trip. terrible. Uh, any, yeah. I'm sorry, Keurig. You know, if you're going to sponsor me one day, um, sponsor the show. I'm probably not the one for it. No, I, I absolutely. I worked with some guys that turned me on to the grinder with a French press. Yeah, and that's probably my favorite and best way to make coffee. But well, Tiffany got this. Uh, she got tired of the Keurig as well. She got some machine that that grinds it. It's uh, you know grinds it for you and yeah. spits it out. And now it's easy, easy enough. It's push the button and it's there. And it's almost as good as French press. Not quite. Interesting. But, but I'm kind of a little bit of a, a coffee snob when it comes to it. Like I didn't. I really shouldn't be. I'm not a hipster. Yeah. I just don't like drinking crap. That's uh, yeah, that's fair. Give that's, me the caffeine I mean, in the morning. I can't do caffeine any other part of the day. If I have it, you know, if I have a, a diet coke or something after five o'clock, I will not sleep that night. Oh, really? That's it. Yeah, it's like coffee in the morning to jumpstart it, and then nothing after that. We're done. We're we're in a construction office. I think there's coffee brewing all day long. Everybody walks around with coffee in their hand. Oh yeah, you you have to. And then any of your. Uh, Vendors, you know, the supply supply houses, you walk into any of them and they've always got coffee oh, on as well. Yep. Well, because those guys, they open up, you know, they, they're open at five because yep. everyone's wanting to basically just get the, and you're in construction and we'll, we'll, again, we'll talk about that. But yeah, they want to get their day going because they usually have a, have a noise ordinance where they're at and they can't start till six or seven or seven thirty or eight if they're residential. And, and so they want to hit, hit all their, their supply houses, get all their crap for the day, then show up at the job. And then it's work, work, work time. It's not, Oh, Hey, it's 9am. Hey, Jim, Bob, go take the pickup truck and drive all the way across town and get us a load of that crap. Yeah, you've lost your day at that point. Yeah, yeah, you're done. And then you get, he goes out and gets stuck in commuter traffic with uh, all the other. Yeah, That's it. Anyway. That's it. So you have two sons, right? You've got uh, Chris and Ethan. I, I believe Ethan's your oldest, and he's the one who was just there helping you get set up, right? Yeah, he's my tech guru. Uh, thankfully, he you know, had a, a, a snafu for me. I looked at your, your gear, and I was like, wow, this is really cool stuff, and kind of checked it out or whatever. And then I decided I was going to do this in my office. I worked today and was, was sitting here and I got to plug it into my laptop and it didn't even dawn on me that my laptop doesn't have a USB. And so I had a panic moment about a half hour before you called and Ethan came and bailed me out. But yeah, Ethan's kind of my tech mechanical guy, loves cars, uh, loves motorcycles, um, has been working on his Jeep, you know, for uh, a little bit doing lift and tires and a little bit at a time. I kind of make them work for it and he has to do a lot of his stuff himself. I won't just, uh, you know, we're not going to take it up to tribe and throw the checkbook at it and let it go. He's got to love it. Yeah, he's got to do it. And then Chris, uh, Chris doesn't have as much interest in the cars, but he loves music and he plays bass and he does. Uh, in fact, something kind of fun for me was he did uh, he does School of Rock, uh, which sounds funny, but it's actually really, really cool. And they've taught him quite a bit. But then they do these venues where they put together a band and they practice this, these songs, whatever, whatever it is. And he's so he's done Metallica and he's done Led Zeppelin and. Pink Floyd and some other stuff that, that I'm into. Uh, but they got to play at Trees in Dallas. And that's a cool venue where if you know anything about Dallas and Trees, that's where some really big names have been. But probably their, uh, from the most memorable, famous story for me is where Nirvana played there. And it was right as they'd already booked it when they were nobody. And then they just came out of nowhere and hit it big. And then Nirvana was playing at Trees and Trees cannot support a band like Nirvana and they just tore the place down. <laughs> yeah. So him being on the stage, I had to tell him the story. Rhonda actually told him the story and uh, him playing on that same stage was just kind of surreal for me. It was kind of cool to watch. So no oh, man, having kids is stuff like that, that, that you get a share in and you kind of see they're like, 
you know, we have the Alexa in our, in our kitchen and in the morning, my, my son will come in, he's 12 and he'll, he will request songs off of it. And it's always some terrible, you know, master mixed rap slash yeah. hip hop. But the other day we were in the golf cart. I'm taking him to, to school and I take him to middle school on a golf cart and it's got the, the West Sounds bar and I'm playing some Aaron Watson and that's some Texas country and it is a freight train and yeah. it's a freight train is a fast beat song. Flash forward about three days. We're riding in the car. Uh, about an hour from here at a baseball tournament and he's in the back seat and he says, Hey dad, what was that freight train song? Who sang that? And I'm like, so I tell him and yeah. the next thing I know he's putting it in his phone. And then uh, a couple hours later, he had seen the day before he'd watched one of the Iron Man's. No, I'm, I take that back. One of the Thors and okay. it's, it's Thor Ragnaron or Ragnaron, uh, the, well, the latest one. Yeah. Wrong. I love some Marvel. I really do. Yeah. But immigrant song. It's Led Zeppelin yeah. immigrant song. They played in there in the beginning. They played there at the end. And I love immigrant song. I think that is, yeah, I'm, it is I'm, great. A, I'm a Zeppelin nerd about Zeppelin, but so he's in the backseat and he brings that up. Hey, what's that song that immigrant something or other? So he plays that. So now I have this 12 year old that's playing Zeppelin and playing Aaron Watson. And I couldn't be more proud of him. If I tried, I couldn't be more yeah. proud of him. Don't get me wrong. He still plays a bunch of crap that you're like, oh. stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, Chris is, Chris is kind of like that too. I mean, where he gets into the old stuff, the, the classic rock stuff. And, uh, I love that. I love that about him. So yeah, I, Ethan does too. He gets into some cra- crazy stuff too. No, neither of mine are really into the rap or the big, uh, they used to like all that electronic stuff, but it was like a whole bunch of noise to me. It really, I had a hard time embracing that, but well, the rap and rock stuff. I- I like old school rap. I mean, we go to oh, yeah. WA. You cannot yeah. go wrong with that. But the new stuff, it's just like so over oversampled. I think is the the right word I want to use for it. Or it's you can just tell it's a mixing board. It's yeah, like a dude talking into a mic and they're just mixing up. So we're gonna mix this up, and this interview is gonna be it's gonna <laughs> sound it. like a techno party. Oh man! So he, Chris is fifteen and Ethan's seventeen. So you're uh, is Ethan a senior this year? Or is he a junior? Junior. He's a junior. Yep. And then. um He's, you know, he's got the Jeep. He got a two-door, regular, plain Jane. They, they have to, our rules, it has to have manual transmission. Um, modern-day theft. Modern-day anti-theft. That's exactly what he says. He's like, man, you know, it's perfect because most of the kids in my school can't drive it. And the more he talked about that, because Ethan really wanted a manual. And, and I want them to have a manual, but, uh, you know, your friends can't borrow it. He's not texting and driving because he's, he's busy driving. Ooh, that's um, a great pro I hadn't considered. Yep. He had to, that's one of the last Christmas, he wanted a radio with CarPlay. That was his request for Christmas because it had just a basic radio in it. And so we did, we helped him with that. Uh, now he can, you know, answer a text or at least listen to a text through the CarPlay. So when he got to be legal to drive, was he excited to go get his driver's license or he, was he more? No, totally interested in it. Yeah, no, he, he was all over it. Um, and that's how I was when I was a kid. And that's kind of where I'm challenged now. So like Chris, I'm like, Hey, so what kind of car do you want? Oh, I don't know. Just something really nice and reliable. I'm like, no, wrong answer. <laughs> you, know, you, gotta, you gotta, you gotta be passionate about something. There's something out there that you want or whatever. And there is actually, but it's not on the list for us. It's, uh, he'd like an old Bronco or an old Blazer. I have an old Blazer, a 76 Blazer that we've done a lot of work to that he would love to have, but there's no airbags. It's not manual. It's just not. It's not something you're going to put your kid, 16 year old kid, in to go down the road. But modern traffic in a superplex like Dallas Fort Worth area is, you know, you can show him if you had, you know, dash video. I, I pass three wrecks a day, easy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we we found a couple things that are close to what he likes that uh, that that qualify, but then they'll be too old. He likes older stuff. He really is. He's an old soul and. Uh, uh, they don't have airbags, and that's kind of a requirement that we have. There's enough cars out there now with airbags that we can put our kids in an airbag car. So 
that's what we're looking for. I shoot him some stuff every once in a while and he'll be like, eh, not really. And then every once in a while he'll grab one and really like it. So, but he hasn't, he hasn't, you know, done his, uh, whatever they call it where he's, you know, got a license that he can drive, but he can't drive by himself when he's 15. He has not done that yet. And I told him last weekend, I was like, well, I'm not motivated to go buy you a car, help you get a car if you're not motivated to go get the, uh, get your restricted license. Yeah. 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 Uh, that's, that, that, that's feasible. Yeah. I mean, I think it's cool that your kids want to go get it, or at least for the most yeah. part. And your first one did. It's so many people. So many people I come across, their kid is like no interest in driving whatsoever, and they're 17 and they're still being driven around. Man, in Kansas, I turned 14 on a Saturday. 14, yeah. and my dad took me to get my driver's license on that Monday. It was November the 7th, and yep. I was 14, and I drove a Jeep Grand Wagoneer. Back to eighth grade, I was in middle school, and I never, I never rode the school bus again. And people like, that's the craziest story ever. And I was like, it was the most amazing thing ever. Are you kidding me? I never <laughs> ride a school bus again. It was awesome. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, and then you hear the stories that kids don't even want to do that. So outside of that, outside of your family, I know you're a very family-oriented man. Before we start talking about your your business and business ventures and off-roading and all that, you have some other distinctly interesting to me hobbies that you're into and one of those is you're in the hand-built motorcycle gang yeah it's not really a gang but I yes yeah, so, so i i do have a passion for uh anything really internally combustible but i like motorcycles um and it's kind of a newer thing really for me i when i say newer you know i've always been i've been in jeep since i was in my early teens you know i've always loved jeeps and and had jeeps in high school and whatnot and i don't even know how many cjs i've had back when you could buy them for fifteen hundred dollars and fix them and sell them and go again and now you can't find one for fifteen hundred dollars but motorcycles are, are a more recent thing for me but i do have a little collection of them and we play and I, i'll sell some and buy something and whatever and uh the hand-built motorcycle show in fact terry madden turned me on to it uh like four years ago and he asked me if I'd ever been. It's in Austin. And I was like, no, I really don't know much about it. And he said, you've got to go. And he and I were going to go and something came up. And he ended up not going. But I haven't missed one since. And it's it's epic. Uh, they have a great selection of different bikes, you know, of, of various builds. And it can be a Harley or it can be a cafe racer. It can be a complete. I mean, some of these guys, uh, uh, the metal work that they do is just unbelievable. And then uh, after I started going to those, I figured out that they have these all over the nation. And then I started meeting people and, uh, you know, one thing led to another and you're, you're meeting all these builders that you, you know, become friends with all over the U S and, uh, I'm pretty entrenched in that world, kind of like the race world. So that's, I, I that's really cool. And that's what I was kind of digging at. I was like, I, I followed you enough and you and I've talked about it enough. I admire craftsmen, tradesmen. I admire like good work. Like, like Randy Slauson, I can look at Randy Slauson TIG welds all the time. People are like, why you look at a weld? Well, because they don't suck. Yeah. You know, right. Or, uh, you know, or in other genres, certainly motorcycles, one or hot rods. I've run around the hot rod world uh, a lot, but yeah, the, the things that guys are able to make with their hands, like a Jesse James, what he can crank yep. out with. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. His, his name yeah. goes without saying. I mean, he is, he's very, uh, a very crafty individual with a lot of talent and a good eye. But yeah, man. So that I wondered how you got into that because it seems so off, but I guess at the same time when you're, when you're a motorhead, a gearhead, uh, they yeah. all kind of flow together for I, you. 
I remember being a kid. I would take I would take whatever money I had made, and I would go to the, and uh, buy magazines. I'd buy hot rod magazines, and a lot of it was cars and trucks. Um, it wasn't really a lot of motorcycles, but I would study it. And even my kids now, you know, there'll be a car coming down the street, and they'll be like, "Hey, what is that?" And I'll say, "Oh, that's about an '85 such and such." And they'll be like, "How do you know that?" And you saw just all the taillight, you know. And I'm like, "Well, you know, just have looked at a lot of cars and a lot of magazines. I've had so. A lot of ghetto facts stashed in this head, kids." That's it. That's it. I've always been into it, and then it just kind of evolved recently into motorcycles. I can fit a lot more motorcycles in a small place than I can cars, and I can usually get them cheaper. Well, I mean, there's that. <laughs> do you actually ride that much anymore? Uh, I don't ride a ton. I ride more off-road, you know, dirt than I do road. Uh, and really, even lately, I haven't ridden a lot at all. But uh, it's. I think for me, it's more about the traffic here in Dallas. So if I ride, I like to try and either ride in back roads or get out of town you know, and, and ride out of town. But I don't even right now, uh, I had a really, really awesome custom. Uh, it was a cafe racer esque road bike that, uh, believe it or not, I had won and it actually came through the hand built show. Uh, I sold it to Alex Wacker not too long ago. He wanted it. And I have a, I have a Ural with a sidecar. We were at the expo show in, in Fort Worth and, uh, he was there and, and I don't even know if I had seen him there, but I go back to our, our tribe tent thing, you know, our, our vendor booth and the sidecar was there. And my wife says, Hey, so, uh, Alex wants your MV. It's an MV Augusta is what this is based off of. Was, uh, Sophie Singos and her dad built it. So she, I'm like, why are you trying to sell the MV? You know, it's not, it's not even here. And he goes, no, he saw the Ural and he knows he had the MV. And so he's hitting it up. It wasn't a week later. He owned the MV. So, and, and it was just me. It's time for me to let it go and, and turn it into money to turn it into something else. And he was wanting something like that for his collection. So I hope Alex, or, you know, I hope he rides that. I did. He, he wrote it. He wrote it home. He didn't trailer it home. When he came and picked it up from my office, uh, Josh brought him up here and he got on that bike and rode it home. Awesome. Yeah, man. I, Wacker's such a good dude, man. He's he's done so much for for off road. He he doesn't have a a good like you know a winning record or a good finish record, but man, he know, he knows how to party. He knows how to bring the party. He's always kind of he's always got a crew of people around. They're always kind of life of the party. Yeah, he's a top top shelf guy. Has top shelf stuff. You know, his builds, everything he chooses is is right on point. I'm disappointed to see that he sold his uh, tribe IFS car. That's uh, I, that kind of brought a tear to my eye. That means he's stepping away from forty four hundred. So um, it, he I'm is. gonna have to give him give him a hard time. Hopefully, he listens yeah. to this and he's like, "Man, f all them." I'm out. Yeah, <laughs> look, he's look, not, at, all, he's look not, at all my money that I had. I'm not. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, no, he uh, he's not gone though. He's we've been building a, a late Ford, late uh, model Ford, like seventies Ford seventy eight seventy nine club cab. Yep, pre-runner, a, a bump side mm-hmm. pre-runner that uh that Adam's been working on for him there at Tribe. I got to check that thing out a few weeks ago. That, that's uh that's gonna be fun. Yeah, it is gonna be fun. It's so close to being done. Uh, I think we're just waiting on a few more things and and it's done. And he does, you know, Alex still races the desert desert scene. So oh yeah, no, he's not out of racing. He's just changing which genre he's he's going that's it. to. Probably, that's it. Which is isn't a isn't a a dumb move. Uh, the prep for his desert truck is a whole lot less than the prep for his four-wheel drive car. For sure. Uh, yeah. may, may, maybe not cost-wise, but definitely hour-wise. Hour to jump back to you here, Matt, as you were, you moved from Florida, you graduated in 93, you mentioned that you guys were, you know, Radio Shack family, and uh, you had a few jobs, you know, post, post-high school there, met, yep. met your wife. Uh, but I know, I think you tried out some college. It didn't give you the successes that you wanted. And you ended up going to work in, uh, I believe Radio Shack's corporate real estate kind of, kind of deal. Walk yeah. Us through I, that. And, and that 
walks us all the way through to today, your current business. And I'm really curious about the man that you've came to be and how you get dollars, you know, you, how big the net is and what type of net it is that you've reached up to grab the, the dollars that are floating above all of our heads. Yeah, uh, Radio Shack has always been good with, um, uh, I guess, the networking scene. And, and if you knew people, they always kind of took care of each other. And when you when you uh, had, uh, I don't know, any kind of really good skill set and a good moral compass, et cetera. And so I ended up in sales in the Radio Shack store. And I know it sounds kind of goofy. People are like, wow, I never really thought that. But that was back in the cell phone heyday when uh, we were selling cell phones like crazy. And if you think cell phones are big now, that was when they were like 65% saturation in the U.S., and now they're probably at a hundred and something percent. I think Europe at the time was like at a hundred and something percent when we were at sixty five percent. So if that gives you any idea as to what the market availability was to sell to, uh, it was pretty huge. And so we were, I was really good in sales, and I happened to have a store that was close to the corporate office and. Uh, an executive vice president over real estate, Andy Zeinfeld, would come in my store occasionally and test some stuff. And I don't remember how the conversation started. I'm, I'm sure I hit him up. But I figured out that I probably didn't want to stay in the sales, the retail sales ops side. I was really, really good at it. I really enjoyed it. I made really good money. Uh, but the next next step up was district manager, regional manager, divisional vice president, et cetera. And I could envision that. That was great. But uh, it was it was all the same thing. You just had to figure out how to manage the people or manage the the workforce set, you know, differently. And and so I ended up taking a 50% pay cut to go to corporate office uh, for Radio Shack. We lived real close to, you know, it was in Fort Worth and we lived real close to there. So I did. I can remember Andy calling me and he's like, hey, so this is what you're going to be paid. And I'm like, hmm, is that negotiable? And he said, nope. And it was half of what I was currently making. Oh, ouch. And, uh, yeah. And I Tough talked to time. Yeah, exactly. And I, I talked to Rhonda and uh, she actually was working at Radio Shack also in the corporate office. And so I took the leap. And uh, my first task was with, uh, she was Becky Hollander at the time. She was another project manager. And we had to put, uh, this is pre-Wi-Fi and everything else that's going on now, but we had to put broadband in 5,000 Radio Shack stores. That was, we were project managers to figure that out. And I can remember going into these meetings and hearing these words, these tech words, and I would write like on the last page of my pad some of the stuff I would hear. And when I'd get back to the office, I had to go look up what it mean, meant because I didn't know and I wasn't going to, I wasn't, I was poker face in the room, you know. <laughs> but we did, we, we were very successful and pulled it off. And I ended up in their construction department, which was falls under real estate. And um, one thing I really recognized is you kind of find your favorite general contractors that really uh, either bail you out or never let you down. You know, they always perform and uh, none of them are bad, but some of them just really stood out. They were the can do guys. And what the model that they used to build out these twenty five hundred uh, square foot Radio Shack stores was very interesting to me because it was heavy self performance and they were able to control their schedule better and uh, control their budgets better. And, you know, you're we call it MEP, mechanical, electrical and plumbing. You still have to sub any of that out because you don't have those licensed guys typically on your staff. But, you know, drop ceilings, walls, jip, framing, et cetera, you can self-perform that if you have the right guys that can do, you know, multifaceted. So while I was at Radio Shack, you know, we also learned how Radio Shack did uh, the construction department as well. Their, their approach to construction was they would we would estimate what it would cost to build the store. And then you'd go to the GC and say, OK, this is the budget. You know, do you want this job or not? And if they wanted it, they took it. And if not, nobody ever passed it off. They always had money in it. But it helped us keep our, our budgets tight and our costs in check. And so that was those two big those two pieces were a big part of uh, why that department worked so well and how you maintained the level. I mean, if you did if you had five thousand stores. Um, we probably did, I don't, I don't remember exactly, but like 500 total projects a year. And that was a lot for a retailer. 
Um, and some of them are remodels, you know, some of them, a lot of them are remodels, 5,000 stores. You have to keep the, the existing stores looking fresh and, and whatever. So those are, those are the two big takeaways that I had. And I mean, I'm fast forwarding a lot, but tenant build today uses those two models, those two pieces of that model. Uh, we do all of our own estimating and we do a lot of self-performance. We just make it work in a 25,000 square foot box. So what was the point where you went from working in Radio Shack and learning to where you stepped out? You you and a, you have a partner on that business. You guys decide to hang your own shingle and make a go at it. What was the catalyst in your life that said, you know what, I'm ready to do this? I, I think it's just because uh, it's like that what next mentality. We were kind of young. I was pretty young then. Um, I hadn't done five years of college, so I was getting good at sales, and then I was moving into corporate, and those those that was my education. You know, those were my my early twenties. So I think there was just a, a what next, and I realized that there was a ceiling for me where I was. I'd put myself in a place where I was only going to go so far, and then you'd have to wait for people to pass away before you're going to get their spot. You know, which you don't wish for, and you, you see that situation, and you just don't. I didn't want to be in that that position, so I started looking for ways out or looking to shift. Uh, elsewhere in Radio Shack to learn something else. And then I finally decided that I wanted to leave and go do residential. And it's something I, to this day, I have a passion for. If you ask me, what do you want to do when you grow up? I would tell you it's to build residential homes. And so I did, I left and I went to work for a home builder. And in the meantime, I had all these contacts and, and friends that were in the business of from the real estate side, deal makers and you know brokers, whatever, and they went to work for developers over time. They left Radio Shack and they went to the other side of the desk to be on the developer side. And so they would call occasionally and ask about numbers or you know does this sound right? Is this GC trying to take advantage of us or whatever? Because they knew we costed costed all of our Radio Shack stores, so we knew what the costs were. And uh, and I had a lot of that. You memorized a lot of that data, that information. And so uh, I have a friend, Ryan Scott, is actually who sucked me back into um, into the commercial side. And he had something happen with a store that it rolled out. He was working for a developer and he was on the construction side, but uh, it rolled. And, and he's like, hey, could you could you build the store? I'm like, yeah, we could build that store. You know, that's a good number. That's a good budget. And he's like, well, you should put something together because this one will be yours if you want this in 30 days. It just rolled 30 days. You can have this job. And it was a Dots clothing store. It was like 1,800 square feet. And I scratched my head. And uh, Jimmy Middlebrook, a good buddy of mine, business partner today at Tenant Build, um, was coming on board. My dad worked with us for at the time. He was, uh, I think he, I can't remember if he, I think Jimmy Middlebrook was the second employee of Tenant Build. I was the first. Uh, and then my dad came in afterwards. But we decided to build this dot store, and I didn't know what I was going to do after this 1,800-square-foot dot store. But you'd build a plan table on wheels, and you did your entire business from the inside of that store. We didn't have an office and we didn't have filing cabinets. I had filing cabinets at the house, but you know, you're going from there. And I was spending as much time doing contracts and whatever for the guys that were walking through the door to help me build the store as I was trying to find whatever the next project was going to be. And it ended up being in that same shopping center. And we built a dots and like a Rue 21 and a golf, et cetera, and a famous footwear and on and on and on. We just stayed in the same shopping center in Rockwall, Texas. And that was a good run, but I was always nervous about how do you, you know, what happens when the, when you run out of work. And uh, we really never had that issue, thankfully. Uh, but then I needed to do more than one project at a time in order to grow. To me, business has to be scalable, sustainable, right. and scalable. And I had the sustainability kind of down, not with any reliability, but it was we were staying busy. But then how do you scale it? And Jimmy left Radio Shack, and then he came on, and then we were doing two jobs at a time. And then we were trying to think about, okay, well, how, the only way we can do t- – 
more than two jobs at a time is if we quit being the project managers on these jobs and we have to figure out how to make enough money to hire a project manager and get out of the job and into the office and then we can fill the pipeline up and keep more work coming and eventually need more PMs. And uh, that's that's really kind of how it how it started unfolding. What's the, I, I tell you, one uh, tipping point for us was we were doing a famous footwear shoe store. The store was not big enough, so they were actually blowing out the back wall to make it bigger. And we had there was no wall in the back of the store. The the store to the left and the store to the right was open for business, but this one empty store was not. And famous footwear was going in there, and we had to move the electrical service from behind the shopping center. And I'm standing in this this trench looking at these electrical conduits and uh, I get a phone call from somebody that used to work with Jimmy and I her name was Tammy and she had gone to work for TJX companies who owns TJ Maxx Marshalls Home Goods etc and this had to be in like 07 maybe 08 and uh, she's like hey how's it going we're catching up and she had gone to work for TJX and she was now a project manager at TJX and she's telling me the background she's like I'm looking for another GC for Texas and she's describing like well what kind of work do you guys do we're, all of our work was developer work at this time, and we were getting bigger. We were doing bigger and bigger work, and Jimmy and I were thinking, man, it won't be long. We'll be doing these big ground-up shopping centers and, you know, dirt work and let's, you know, all in. And uh, she's describing, yeah, we do some paint touch-up and some DCT replacement on these open stores and some ceiling tiles, and we like to fix up the bathrooms with new ceramic tile or whatever. And I'm looking at these guys demoing the back of this famous footwear, what will be a famous footwear, the wall down to open nothing. I'm standing, and we've got these huge conduits going to a transformer. We're about to shoot a tennis ball with a pull string through so we can pull the, the service line feed to. And I just told her, I was like, hey, so uh, I just that I don't think that's a good fit for us. Like, that's just not who we are. That's not what we do. You know, I appreciate the call, but that's just not what we do. And uh, she's like, well, okay. You know, we talked for a little bit more and she goes, well, I want you to think, you know, though, this is the hook. She got me with this hook. She says, uh, if I know anybody that could possibly figure out how to make a dollar in 30,000 square feet, it would be you. And she's like, it's easy, quick turn work, small contract, but I believe you can probably figure this out. And that was it. And she hung up. And like a week later, I called her and I was like, all right, so tell me about these big stores, you know? Yeah. And we, we will hire the guys. We will bring the people on. We will, yeah. we will collect. Yeah. But at the time, it felt like all volume play. It felt like you were doing these small contracts that in these big boxes. Because you didn't do 20,000 feet of floor. You did like 100 VCT. So you had to go pick out the 100 worst VCT in the store, chip up that one tile, and replace that one tile. That's a pain. You know, that stuff was not a pain like in a bad way. It just wasn't wasn't a lot of high volume work, but that turned into remodel work and they've been a great company. I can remember her bosses, they were, they were uh, vice president and MOD, manager of development. They came down and they talked to us and they asked some really criti- critical questions and I wasn't sure if we were even going to pass the test and, uh, you know, it turned into bigger work and better work and uh, we, we just really worked our butt off to make sure we always tried to deliver and be, be reliable and, you know, for us, we're not trying to make a million dollars on a project. I just, I want to do work for the next 20 years. Well, listening to you talk and actually, you can't see this uh, in your car while you're driving, but you know, listening to this interview, but looking at Matt, Matt's, the, his facial expressions and his ability to talk about this, it might have lulled you a little bit, but he's he's very passionate. You can just see the passion in his eyes about his, his job. But I, I know a little bit of a story about in your, your beginnings here, and it's tied back to you know, where I flashed back a little while ago about your beard. You were never a beard mm-hmm. guy, but today you have this, you know, this, this known, this, uh, it's a trademark. We're going to say Matt has a trademark beard. And at one point, you know, your wife Rhonda had, had uh, stickers made, little flat mats. And I've got on my pre-runner truck on the driver's side mirror, there's a flat. Yeah. I don't know if it's yeah. you put it there or maybe Terry Madden. I can't, I don't remember. Oh, I think maybe you guys were together, but you'll stuck one there and it's been on there for, 
three or four years now. So That's every awesome. time I get in my truck to back up, there's a flat mat. So yeah, you're, every time I drive that truck, there's, there's a little bit there, but your beard and you're going to have to tell a story about, uh, Rhonda making the stickers. Cause I love that story. I think yeah, it's, I think yeah. it's a comedy to me, but you and your partner, Jimmy, you guys, uh, he made some commentary to you about, dude, we are too young or we look too young or, yeah, so it was actually the first time we ever did a bid walk. And so we have different types of projects that we do for TGX, but a, a bid walk's where you go into a, I'm going to make it up, but let's say a circuit city, a closed circuit city, and we're going to gut it and turn it into whatever they want it to be. And they, they bring a selection of GCs in, and we all are going to bid against each other. And, you know, we were the new guys on the block. We were the ones that nobody really paid attention to. And we uh, were there, and you felt like the kids at the adult table on Thanksgiving. Like the very first time you ever got to sit at the adult table and you're probably told don't speak unless spoken to and don't, you know, be, be polite and don't, you know, all the, all the typical things you tell your, your young kids as they're trying to grow up and learn manners at the table. And uh, we, that's how we felt. We felt, we felt small time and uh, we we're like, man, we're good at this. What is this? Why is this? And so uh, the very next day I started growing a goatee and I had never had facial hair. And you know, with the racing community, it's probably less beard and more about the hair on my head. Cause I always had short hair for a long time. And then I, I long time ago, I just kind of grew it longer and nobody has ever given me a hard time about my hair or none of it until I started racing. And I mean, everything else I'm into motorcycles, cycling, all the other stuff, they don't, it's just hair on your head. No big deal. But in racing, it is something I cannot escape. It is, it's actually kind of funny. I give you a hard time too. Everybody does. You look good. I mean, to to hear me say that about another man to say you look good. I mean, there's not very many guys out there that I'll say, Hey man, you look good. Like, like we'll give Terry Madden as an example because we've talked about him a little bit here and he's been on the show before. Terry's not a good looking guy in my book, but Terry has amazing (laughs) hair, just amazing hair. It could be the rattiest, greasiest, oiliest, whatever. Like he hadn't showered in two weeks coming out of bar. It's almost to dread level and it looks good and photographs good. So it does. there's your backhanded compliment from Wyatt. Oh man. So yeah, you've, uh, you guys have had tenant build going for 15 years. Yeah. Close. Uh, we started in 06 and, uh, we rode through the, uh, thankfully TJX, um, 08 when the bubble burst. I'm glad I never made it into residential at the time because that would have been a bad, bad situation to start in 06 and then get to 08 and we probably would have been out of business. TJX, we had started doing more and more work from between 06 and 08 and it got to a point where uh, we were kind of putting all of our eggs in one basket because they were healthy. A lot of people were shopping with them and they weren't feeling the same uh, issues in that recession period that, that a lot of other retailers were. And so they kept doing work, so we kept staying busy and obviously we kind of hooked our trailer up to their their hitch because uh, that's who had the work. Uh, and then as time went on, I started looking for other opportunities and other clients. And we do have other clients, but still TJX is our, they, they do, they get the lion's share of our attention. And a lot of our internal processes and procedures are built around them. And then we modify for everybody else uh, because they can give us more work. But, you know, as we, uh, as we were doing more work for them, we started trying to find other other opportunities. And uh, I would go to the VPs at TGX and try to figure out how much work was out there. And uh, it was almost a matter of figuring out how to grow, diversify geographically. And that's exactly the, uh, the strategy we kind of took was we stopped looking at other 
retailers and started realizing that this one relationship has got a lot of work all over the nation. And we're now, we, we work in 30 different states within the U.S. We have licenses and can work in 30 different states. And we've taught our guys how to travel and we learned how to travel and we have subcontractors that now travel. Not all of them, but we have a couple. Uh, Keenan Leatherwood, a racer, does a lot of our HVAC, uh, you know, all over, the, all over the nation. And that's been a great relationship and a lot of fun uh, to work with him. But, uh, you know, I think that the growth geographic geographically helped us to kind of diversify our model a little bit. And then as we found new clients that we really wanted to do business with and we kind of added them to the fold. It's been good for us. Can't complain. That's amazing. Uh, I didn't know until recently, did not know your story at all as far as work. I just, you know, Matt, you know, money Matt, you know, for the most part, you know, he showed up out of, from my perspective, almost nowhere, ends up, you know, he's racing, he's winning championships and like, wow, who is this guy? And then Keenan, same way, Keenan shows up at Tribe. Builds a car, goes out, he's racist. It's like, man, there's a lot of, a lot of dudes, you know, younger dudes. And this is back when I thought you were younger than me, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I'm just an old guy. Yeah, it's just an old guy. Um, and, you know, Adam Shear there at Tribe is just cranking out race car after race car after race car to you guys. And, uh, and now to know your story, um, no, I, I love your story. I think you're, the, you're, uh, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. I mean, just, 15 minutes ago, we were talking about you, uh, doing, you know, checkout races at, uh, at Sam's Club. I mean, yeah. to, to where you're at today and, wh- and what you guys are cranking out today. It's an amazing story. Absolutely amazing story. And I didn't know Keenan, uh, uh, did, did HVAC for you guys too. So even, even that, I mean, learn that about him right here. Yeah. We were, we were on a wheeling trip with Jeeps one time, just, uh, leaf looking actually. And, uh, we were, we were on this trip and they, uh, they introduced us, and I don't remember who they are. I want to say maybe it was his wife and my wife introduced Keenan and I. We were just talking, you know, the, the general questions. What do you do? Well, what do you do? And we, one thing led to another, and we realized that we should probably be working together. And So I did the same thing. I mean, we cost everything in-house. We estimate everything in-house. So a lot of guys, when they do these hard bids, they go out and get the electrician, the mechanical guy, all these people to submit bids. They put together one big bid and then give it to the client. We don't do that. We cost it in-house, and then we go to our subs and say, can you do this for this? And we just keep all that data in-house and we grow it over time for, you know, things like the tariff issue or inflation or whatever. And so that's what I did. I had my guys who wanted a bid from Keenan. That's usually where they negotiate. They know what their budget is. And I just shot Keenan the, the budget and said, you know, what do you think? Is this, are these numbers that are doable? Because some guys just can't, you know, they're, they're uh, fixed expenses or the structure of their business or whatever just won't allow them to work with us. Uh, and then other guys just eat it up. We're kind of in between that really small guy and that really big company, that organization. We need the guys in between. Well, that's and, a good place uh, to be. Um, yeah. yeah the, the small guy tends to not be able to take on big jobs because he can't make yeah. payroll. Uh, yep. he, he needs to, you know, I guess it's, uh, from hand to mouth or whatever. Yeah. You know, right. All, exactly. the, all the sayings that go with that. But yeah, the small guy usually doesn't have enough, uh, you know, a, a deep enough balance sheet to carry payroll for two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, three months, four months, five months, six months versus yeah. the middle guy sometimes can. So you get a bite at a different type of apple than those guys get. And then you got the big guys like your JE Duns or your, yep. and they're out there, you know, huge balance sheet, but they're doing massively huge projects because they can do massively huge projects, but there's still plenty of, plenty of seats at the table, uh, in the construction world for, for the business you're in. And it's amazing that you found that niche and then dialed that niche up to 10 and extract out of it. I love it. Uh, great story. So where in this whole world did you end up messing around with Jeeps? And I know you had an old CJ at one time and that kind of brings you along the path to be the off-road mat that we know today. Where did that bite you? Did it, was it a yeah. bug that bit you or? 
Yeah, no, I think I was always into Jeeps. Uh, when we moved to Texas, uh, we went. I went to a high school called Grapevine High School, and a lot of the schools that were around that were not there at the time. And uh, it's in a, a, a nicer area, um, semi-affluent area, and when we were not a family that could keep up with a lot of that. I remember pulling into the, the parking lot first day of school, and I thought I was in the teacher's parking lot because the cars were so nice and so new and, you know, really nice stuff. And uh, back then is when I figured out that I – really wanted to just rebuild a Jeep, you know, repaint a Jeep or have a nice Jeep because it was a little bit of a timeless style. You know, it was, it was very acceptable. It was kind of cool, and that kind of thing. It still is, right? It still yeah. is. It just, it wasn't a grubby car, but I, again, I could go get one for $1,500 and you give me a handful of months and we'll make it into something cool looking and then away you go. And I went through a big learning curve. I mean, I bet I had, I don't, I've had teens of CJs, um, but you know, initially I'd get one and then I wouldn't be able to figure something out or fix it or whatever. And I'd end up getting rid of it and getting another one. And they were, almost every time it was Jeeps, but then we started wheeling them and you know, that was back when you put a 35 inch tire on a Jeep and it was big. That was a big tire, you know, glorious now 35. Days, yes. Glorious days. Those were, we were <laughs> yeah. all so much more wealthy. <laughs> yeah, so that's right. Free time. That's right. But, uh, yeah, so I just never got rid of Jeeps. I never got out of Jeeps. Um, my dad found a Jeep in a garage. I think my mom would get mad at me here. So my mom found a Jeep at a garage sale and my dad is who went and got it. He went and looked at it and it ended up being a scrambler. Man, I think that was in like 93. And then he kind of rebuilt it and it was, uh, uh, turned it red, tan interior, real nice clean build. Had a couple issues just from sitting a while, didn't get driven enough. And then he gave it to me for a Father's Day one year. And then we rebuilt it into what it is today. And, uh, we wheel it and, you know, it drives to and from the office, but then we wheel the crap out of it when we get on the trail too. And I tried to build it to where it's fairly stock still. Not if you can call it that, you know, like you can undo just about everything we've done to it. So when my kids think I'm crazy for putting all this crazy stuff on it and I, I messed up a scrambler, uh, they can undo everything and put the original fenders back on it and paint it back to whatever color they want to. And it looks like an original scrambler. So uh, right. that's been really fun. Is, is that the current leaf looking mobile? It is. It is currently. Now we have a front axle issue that uh, we're strategizing on what to do with it and how to fix it. It's been haunting me for a long time, ever since the initial build. But uh, I think we're going to just scrap what we have underneath it and go a different direction. But that's still it. That's the rig we always take. And uh, That's it. Uh, yeah. it yeah. I'm very proud to hear you use the term leaf looker or leaf looking. My, the first time I heard it was Miles Hasekus used it. We, you know, we, we were around each other way too much out on the trail and on stuff like that and he and that's what he talks about because he's got two very little very little girls and oh yeah i mean we're just gonna go out have some beers do some leaf looking you know no no, are on the trail but we're not hitting anything we're not climbing yeah we're just we're out there and i'm like man you know my kids are about that same age that that's really what we should be calling it as well and and it kind of and every time i use it people look at me like man that is the perfect term for that you know we've got rock bouncers we've got you know you know, crawling or hauling, we've got checkers or wreckers, you know, all yep. of that. But no, yeah, leaf looking. That's the, I love that. I love that term. So you guys got that. But now you have a, a your race Jeep, your 4500 class race Jeep. Now yep. l- let's go into that. How did you go from where it was? Cause you had it, you built it and then it evolved into a race car. Yeah. Uh, and I was actually owned by Tom Allen at PSC and he had Adam do some tube work front and back half it it only has it has the two original frame rails that are about six feet long from the motor mounts to right behind the the rear firewall you know the passenger firewall and so he um he had started it i don't know if he was going to make it a, a streetable race car type setup but it had a lot of racer vibe to it 
and uh, had when I saw it, it had 40 inch tires. It was almost done. It could run and drive, but it still needed some stuff. And Adam had done a lot of the work to it. And Ryan Donaldson, who's now in our shop that worked at PSC at the time, uh, he had done a lot of work to it. And uh, and it was really close. And so he posted it up on Facebook or something. I don't remember where, but for sale. And Adam and, and uh, I and our families were on vacation in Colorado. And I can remember holding my phone up saying, hey, is this is this any good? Is this whatever? And he's like, yeah, that's actually a really cool rig. You know, it needs a, thing, a few things, but uh, it could be a cool rig. And so when we got back in town, I went and saw Tom and I made an offer on it. You know, I told him specifically, hoping that would be something that would motivate him to sell it to me over somebody else because I knew other people were calling on it. But I told him I was going to Put, you know, pick it up on a trailer and drop it right back off at Adam and just have it finished. So he did. And it was radiator in the front and they, Adam put some rock lights on and uh, a few other things, but then got it to run and drive right and be reliable. I had junkyard axles and, you know, it was a 5.3, aluminum block 5.3. And that, hey, what that year is this? Is this like late 2014, early 2015? It is. Yeah, I think I got it in 14 and, and wheeled it and had a really good time. A super capable rig, just a lot of fun. Um, and then we took it to Hammers in 15 and had a really good time out there. It was probably one of the, the most capable rigs of our, our little group running around there. You know, we had a pretty mixed, mixed bag of people that some of them had Jeeps and some of them had buggies, but this one really performed well. And the story I heard from now, this was leaning against a fender in Oklahoma somewhere, I believe, but we were with, uh, I was with your wife and she started telling the story about the Jeep. She's like, yeah, you know, he, he talked me into this thing and we were going to take this thing. This was going to be our new trail Jeep. And then next thing you know, we're racing it and we're throwing away pieces off of it. We're cutting sections off. And now it is, now that's the race Jeep. And now we never go trail, trail riding ever because of the race Jeep. Is that, was she far off? No, she's not far off. I mean, I think that's every everybody's story here. And there's, uh, unfortunately, when you're doing a full season of Eastern and Western series, it doesn't leave a lot of leaf looking time. You no, know, you are always in the dirt. Yeah. So, but, uh, but yeah, you know, I mean, but she's embraced the, the racing community as much as I have. And I think she loves it. And the people is what really draws us back. But, uh, uh, so we've been, you didn't, but, but, but yeah, you took the, you took this Jeep, uh, what we know now today is the 4510. You took it out to the hammers in 2015, hang out, you're wheeling, but then somewhere you crossed over the bridge to racing. And I, that story's pretty, pretty funny, laughable. <laughs> And you gotta give it, you gotta break it down for everybody because no one's, no one will believe the story unless it comes from your mouth. Well, so we, uh, yeah, we go to 2015, go to Hammers, first time I've ever been out there and I've known of it a couple of years and I've known Adam for a while and we decide we're gonna go out there, a bunch of us and we, you know, haul everything out, have trailers dropped off, we're renting trailers and we have our little corral or whatever and this is the first time I've ever seen this in real life. And, uh, I was, I was pretty hooked. I mean, the energy is pretty, uh, pretty addictive. And so we were uh, fortunate. That was a year that Doug Jackson and a couple other guys were racing cars and Adam was out there helping them. And we were helping put beadlock tires, you know, beadlocks and tires on, on wheels and just dumb stuff, but busy work, you know, stuff that needed to be done. So we were doing what we could to help, but you're kind of in the mix. And so I'd figured out what the inside, you know, being in Hammertown and having an address in Hammertown really felt like a met and whatever. And, uh, so the next year Adam had like six cars. Cars. Not him personally, but you know we have like six different racers that are tribe cars, and uh, I think I called. I don't remember if I spoke to Dave or Shannon Welch. I didn't know Dave that well back then. I, I'd met him anyway. It doesn't matter. So I called them, and we can't have an infield spot. And I'm like, well, he's got all these cars. I mean, it seems like we should be able to, to just rent an infield spot. And they're like, no, you got to enter a car. And so we went back and forth and, you know, I gave up on them. And then the guys on we had a text string going with a group of us, and they're like, well, somebody just needs to enter their car. 
you know, let's just enter a car and, and go get an infield. So I only needed two spots. And uh, so I asked Adam, I was, I was like, hey, so what would it take? You know, our car was originally possibly going to be a race car at some point, you know, a, a semi you know, race car. And what would it take to finish that? And uh, this was in October. And he was like, yeah, I think we could probably do that. <laughs> and so we looked it up and, and we're checking the class and what class would it go into. And, uh, and he's like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, we could probably do that. We need a few things and, and whatever. But so Bears was a big one. And, of course, we had no sponsors. You know, we we're just doing this for fun. I was like, you want to co-drive? And he's like, yeah, I'll co-drive. That sounds fun. And so uh, so that was it. That's We needed two infield spots. So we, we did. Um, and that's when they still drew for qualifying position. And I can remember be, watching that live feed at the house. And we were all together and they're drawing the names and we qualified like eighth or something and just when, you know, drawing our, our number out of the, the hat or whatever they did. But then, you know, we went and we raced in 2015 and uh, stayed up front most of the day. We did really, really well. And, and um, then we broke the car and had to weld it. We used Aaron Peter's car and had to weld it. We didn't have much time. I mean, much, much uh, race course left. We were out of the rocks or just barely out of the rocks and we were broken. And, uh, Shelby Gilstrap brought us a spare battery and a ready welder. And Adam welded that car back together. And then we just tore out of there as fast as we could to try to make it in time. I think we made it like with like two minutes, 57 seconds left or something. So we had our first race and our first finish. Uh, and we were in there that year. No, it didn't end there. So uh, after that, we had fun, and, and the front axle was just terrible. We beat it up bad. That's actually what Adam was welding back together. So we would nurse it you know, back to health, and then we decided we were going to go race in Arkansas. That was the next series race, and a lot of the Texas guys were going, so we just kind of tagged along to go race, and Adam could be there to support those 4,400 cars because we were racing at a different time. And so, uh, so we'd go race, and um, we won. We got first place in that race. And it's funny, actually, we actually had an issue with an idler pulley, I think, and uh, we it broke. The, the pulley broke off. You couldn't, it didn't, the bolt didn't back out and you have to run it back in. You, it broke. And Adam figured out how to reroute the belt, move an idler pulley from up higher and down lower and reroute the belt. And it, it kept it to get together just enough to get the car finished. And we won that race. And then we, uh, we decided we were going to do another one. And we ended up winning the next one. And then the third Eastern Series race, we won that one as well and had swept the Eastern Series. Going into nationals, it set us up in a really good position to to try to take our first national championship. But, you know, I mean, that all said, that was all luck. You guys you guys didn't do that. Luck did that for you, right? Because well, and you came back in 2017 just to back it up, be like, okay, for any of those people that are doubters that, that we did this on luck, you went ahead and backed it up with a 2017 Natty Championship. Yeah, that was exactly the approach. So the very first time we got in there, I, when we went from the very first uh, King of the Hammers to that Reno race, I think that the car ended up with spider tracks underneath it. We had built the axles and put those underneath it during that season because we were having such a hard time with the front uh, front axle. Uh, and there were a few other modifications we had to make. I think we moved the radiator up, put a bigger radiator in, moved the radiator up. So every race it would get a handful of modifications that the car just really needed. You know, the car was barely hanging on every race. But by the time we got to Nashville, it was it was getting more and more dialed. Legit. <laughs> yeah, it was it was showing up, and uh, and that was a thing. So right before nationals, we did a ton of work on it because we didn't want all those West Coast guys to think this Eastern Series races, you know, like we were just slow and we were going to show up and get swallowed up by the Western Series guys. And so when we got over there, uh, I had two issues. So every nationals I've raced has been a lot of strategy. Um, by the time we get there, if we've played our season out right and had enough luck. Uh, we're within the hunt. We're, we're pretty close. And so there's usually one or two people that we need to be watching for, but we don't need to really win a race, not unless they're winning the race. And uh, that year it was Justin Hall. 
And so we were watching him pretty close and he's fast and he's, he's uh, a big competitor. Um, had a lot of fun racing with him, but we were able to pull the win. I think I just had to keep him from, you know, we had to finish the race and I think I had to keep him, you know, within a few places or something. So once we were able to do that, it was uh, going into the next season. We just, we wanted to do it again. We wanted the whole thing. And again, it's kind of a bold thing to say, you know, you want the a national championship back to back. But that's what we that's what we set our goals for. So that that was the year we finished third at uh, King of the Hammers that year. And we were just trying to stay competitive and stay top. We didn't really we weren't hunting necessarily for the podium, but uh, we wanted to set up the season right. So we're just trying to have a good, solid, reliable race. And uh, and we didn't sweep any series races that year, but we got a lot of trophies. We spent a lot of time on the podium. So if you're consistently second and third, you might not ever have to rent, win one of those races, but you can get a national championship. And we had some first place finishes, but we had some really good good finishes overall. And we ran the Eastern and the Western series. We did both series that year. And uh, so by the time we got to the nationals, you know, we had set it up pretty good. And that year with Sean Rance, I think I had to keep him within a, a certain position. And so we're not ever trying to kill it. We need the car to finish. So, you know, our strategy is, is just to put, keep it together and uh, watch whoever this racer is that's got points that could, that could beat you. And so we did it the second year. And then, of course, you that, did the third year, we wanted to do it again. Yeah. So we wanted to go again. By that time, we were, we had started to make a name for ourselves as being competitive. And we wanted to, uh, we wanted to keep that, that consistency. Yeah, I remember having a discussion with you after, I, I don't remember which race it was, but I feel like it was King of the Hammers. Uh, and it, it was a competitive discussion about strategy and about, you know, being, you know, we can be best friends, you know, off the track, but on the track, it's a different story. You know, I'm trying to beat, I'm trying to beat myself, but yeah. I'm also not going to, you know, give you any favors because I want to beat you as well. And you'd had a, uh, an issue with another competitor. And at the end of the day, I was like, Matt, you are too nice of a guy on course. You're a nice guy. I'll, I'll, off track but yeah. on track you need to be a little bit more aggressive and that guy he you can drink beer with him all night afterwards but yeah. during the event when the visor's down and you're in between the green and the checkers it's go time and if you're you know hey no go ahead no no you go ahead no you go ahead no 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 that's that's not racing yeah. that's uh yeah that, that's definitely one moment in, in my history that uh i regret in the moment but i think at the time i had I felt really solid about what we had going on and I felt like it wouldn't have mattered, like it wouldn't change anything. And that one situation changed that race, you know, and I was as mad at myself as I was at the other racer. You know, when I, that's, you know, Rhonda says you don't ever really lose it, but you were like ready to throw a helmet clean into the stratosphere. And, and I was, you know, I was, I was livid getting out of the car, uh, yeah, but I you kind of soak it up. So something good to learn about yourself as well. Yeah. 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 As long as you learn something from it and go forward, I mean, I think you end up ultimately winning there. And it did, uh, you know, on the long term, on the macro level, you have won. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, in, in this particular instance, we're still big competitors and we're still friends. And we talked about it after after the race and aired the air and moving on, you know. But it, it also helped me feel later, like, if I'm ever put in this situation again, I now have a pass. Yeah. To you know, to stick it to somebody you know, if need be. So uh, I, I probably just, haven't, yeah, I ahead, probably yeah. haven't raced. I, no, I was gonna say, I probably haven't raced quite as nice as that after that race. That was my learning curve. There you go. There you go. I think, and I think that's, at least I'm proud of you for that because when <laughs> I saw that, I was like, man, I, it, you're a nice guy. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> you I guess. don't need to be that nice, Matt. Yeah. Oh man. So moving on, you end up with Adam Shearer, owner, uh, Adam, you know, is the founder of Tribe 4x4. You guys yep. get together. He'd been doing a lot of work for you. He's been your co-driver. You've been easily around each other for probably about five years at this point. You mm -hmm. approach him about 
some of the, the, the troubles he was having as a sole proprietor of Tribe 4x4, he wears many hats at the time, doing payroll, to doing scheduling, to doing parts ordering, to still fabricating, to still running the Torchmate, to rebuilding shocks, to, you know, no one man can do it all. And so you guys end up getting together and you step in and now you're a partner with uh, with Adam on Tribe. Walk, walk me through kind of that and your, your mindset of, what you've done with tenant build and how you approach things to what you've done over at tribe. So I know one simple thing that I've seen is you guys have like a Monday meeting. You guys get everybody, yeah. everybody in the same corner. You have the discussion about here's what we've got on the agenda for this week. Here's what was on the agenda last week that we accomplished and go. And you guys have those touch points. Let's, yeah. Let's talk about your involvement there. Yeah. So we, you know, at tenant build, we have a very uh, corporate feel without a corporate feel, if that makes any sense at all. So there's a lot of casual and the office is kind of casual and it's an industrial vibe. Uh, but there's some, there's some non-negotiables. So, you know, at Tenant Build, we have a Friday morning meeting and we go through every project on our books, whether it's pre-construction, in construction or post-construction, uh, ready to, to close out or be built or whatever. And, and everybody in our staff is, knows you don't travel on Friday. Everybody's in there. We all talk through every project. Doesn't matter how long it takes and how many projects are on the books. That, that kind of, uh, corporate or that kind of, um, self-discipline to me is important in business. You got to have some of those, those benchmark things that you just do that keeps everything reliable and moving right. And one of the things that I, I could recognize with Adam was, uh, that, you know, here you've got this creative genius when it comes to what he can put together or figure out. You know, I mean, these, every, everything that comes through the shop is like a puzzle to him and he's going to beat it. And that's, that's kind of his approach. And he's, he's, uh, you know, incredible fabricator, problem solver, et cetera. But he does not like to have to deal with payroll or sales taxes or IRS or insurance or and I could keep going, you know, certificate of occupancy in a new space or, you know, the dumpster. When the dumpster guy quits pulling dumpsters, it probably means you just that bill is in that pile and you got to go get it and pay the dumpster guy, you know, right. otherwise he's that dumpster is going to sit there. Full. I mean, he's <laughs> Adam was drinking from a fire hose. Yeah. Yeah. He's trying to do everything. And he was, you know, he was small shop. So I know when I say small shop, I'm talking about you have one, two, maybe three guys in there and he is the admin. He's the, the guy that often answers the phone. Um, you know, he's also a fabricator. He's also, so it's just all, as you said, it's a lot of hats to wear. So what, you know, watching that and watching these struggles and you'd go over there and hang out and work on a car with them or watch him work on a car or whatever. And, you know, and hear some of these stories, uh, after a period of time, I can remember talking to Clarissa and her saying, yeah, you know, he struggles with this part. He struggles with that part. And it's, he doesn't struggle with any of the hard stuff. You know, the, the stuff that I would call hard, he struggles with the stuff that I'm like, well, I mean, that stuff's kind of easy, but he just didn't have time to do it. You know, he's too busy being genius on this other stuff. Uh, so one thing led to another. I actually talked to Jimmy. So we have, we have several different, um, uh, companies within a company. They kind of cater to company divisions. And one of them is a management arm, um, of our company. And it handles all of our regulatory stuff, our payroll, our insurance and our licenses. You know, when you, when you're working in 30 states, you have a lot of paperwork that, that is muddled up with that, that you have to take care of sometimes every year, but sometimes every two to five years. So you, you have to, you have to have processes in place to manage that. And I went to Adam with a business plan. I wrote up a business plan and, and sat down with, uh, Adam and Lance and Jimmy and Jimmy and I had already kind of edited it out within ourselves. And we kind of painted a picture to see if they were receptive to that. And, was and uh so we wrote it up and sat down and talked all the way through it and he said yeah let's let's do it and that's really kind of where we put that together and you know four by four became 16 so it was tribe 16 adam had always played with that anyway with the racing and that's right uh 
Yeah, so he he would make that. Uh, that was on a lot of race cars and stuff. And so we just adopted. We actually abandoned Tribe Four by Four because we had to create a new company. And so we made it Tribe Sixteen and used all the old logo. And the only thing we changed was that oval in the sixteen, which he had already kind of shown off uh, to the world already anyway. So it was pretty seamless. And here we are. And now you guys just moved locations from Adam's old shop, kind of in east of downtown. Again, this is a two-part series, so Adam will definitely get this other side. But you guys found a new location, and then you took your tenant build skill set and revamped it, remodeled it, and it's beautiful. And you just had yeah, a, you. just had an open house on that this past weekend. So when people listen to this, it'll be two weeks ago. But, yeah, it's very cool to see your skill set go into that building, which was a former hot rod shop, and give it the the, the, the tribe makeover and the feedback i got on sunday and monday uh and tuesday of this uh, of the party was holy crap that is a nice space that is set up uh you guys you know bunch of new bays the decor is awesome everything uh, has a place and a place for everything uh which adam didn't have it at at the old shop so no i mean i'm very 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 pumped about uh you guys's next move with tribe and I'm going to save a lot of that tribe discussion for uh, for Adam, but I was very pumped to see you getting involved, you know, taking the friendship level and the com- competition level, and then your business acumen to help out. Yeah, I consider Adam a, a really good friend, and to see another guy, you know, help him out because I can tell he's been drinking from a fire hose for ten years, but he cranks out beautiful stuff. And sometimes you're like, how does he do it without being on meth? Like, yeah, how does yeah. he, how does he last? When, yeah. when does, how does he last? How do, what breaks him down? Well, I'm not going to give away his shop stuff, but I always felt like the work that came out of his old shop. And for those of you that, that have been to his old shop, it's two bay doors, shotgun style, pretty low key. And it's a destination. You're not accidentally going to drive by that place and stop in the door. You went to his shop to walk in there. But the work that came out of there compared to the shop just always blew me away when I first met him. And uh, so when we sat down to do this shop and I'm going to let him, him, you know, go into it. But when we sat down to design this shop at the conference room table, it was a, uh, uh, how do we make this really, really great? And well, he's had, a, he's always had an amazing team of guys that have worked for him. Yeah, um, absolutely. From Lance, who was Lance at PSC, everyone who was anybody in off-road knew Lance prior to Lance going to work at, at tribe and being a partner over there to, Kindle, you had Kindle there. You had David Demoise yep. pass through the doors there. Yep. Uh, Ryan, though, man, Ryan kills it. I mean, Ryan yeah. absolutely kills it. Billy yeah, Ryan's Drake, awesome. Billy Drake was over there for a, a, a long time. Uh, yep. I saw when I was up there a few weeks ago. You had Josh Whitesides. I didn't know Josh worked there. I'm yeah, he started there. there. I didn't know. I walked in there. I'm like, what are you doing here? He goes, I work here. I'm like, how long have you worked here? Like a year. Yeah. Oh man, yeah. So I can walk into a place and be on a first name basis with so many people in his team. I knew he just, he's assembled a really good team and they're just, they just crank out really good work. Yeah. And we have, well, we have Will now and we have Neil Reimer and those guys are amazing. They're uh, great fabricators, great welders, and neither of them came from the Ultra Four fabrication world, but they've come from fabrication in other places and have just fit right in. They just picked up and Adam loves them and they're, they're really rocking it now. Yeah. I think, uh, he had told me that he was uh, hiring a guy that came from the, the lowrider world. That's it. That's Neil. Neil. Yeah. Neil. Well, I can't wait to hear more about Neil. Uh, you know, hydraulics and airbags, and uh, and he's our guy, right? Yeah, he's cool. He's he's good. He's good at what he does. I think they've uh, he's been on the radar for a little while now. As somebody we'd want to recruit, and uh, I think that just finally happened. So, well, moving on from there, we have one last big piece of the puzzle that I wanted to get 
out of you. And it's something that it's something, it's a little bit somber on the front end, but on the back end, it's really, man, I'm so proud of to know you and to know that you've gotten involved with this. But, you know, as the community, the off-road community knows, the hot riding community knows, land speed community knows, motorcycle community knows, any of the tradesmen, craftsmen that are out there, they know, they knew of Jesse Combs. Uh, we lost her a few months ago. Every, this is, this is an, an, a known commodity of, of, of what had happened. It's uh, very sad, very somber. It's really impacted a lot of our friends, a lot of our community, and so many have stepped up on so many levels. Well, out of this loss of life, is, there's no way around it. It's just freaking terrible. But Jesse was always a proponent of women in the workplace, uh, women as craftsmen, women as tradesmen, women welders. Uh, if you can dream it, you can do it as a woman. And out of that, there's a foundation that was formed, the Jesse Combs Foundation, to carry on her mantra, carry on her, her torch. And you were recently named to the board of directors Correct. of the Jesse Combs Foundation and charged with carrying that forward. Tell us, you know, Matt, tell us about, I guess, everything that kind of rolled into this. And then let's talk about, you know, the foundation and how every member on the board, you didn't know any of them. They're all from different genres. And then what the forward goal is. Yeah. So, um, the, the, the board is seven people. Um, and none of us, and maybe a couple of them knew each other. I'd only met one of the, the individuals, Dana, uh, Wilkie one other time, but everybody else, none of us knew each other. And we all, uh, are at Terry and Jesse's house. And, um, trying to kind of work through that and what has formed from that visit. There were a lot of people there, but we ended up forming the Jesse Combs Foundation. It's something that Jesse wanted. Uh, it's something that her family supports and wants. You know, I think it's it's key to kind of carrying on what she was about. She's always positive and uplifting. And whether you were female, male, old, young, didn't matter. She was always the one that would say, yeah, go for it. You should go do that. You should try that, whatever. And if she could uh, uh, facilitate that in any way for you, she would. And uh, something that she's wanted to do is she's wanted a foundation and that would uh, help young women, either in their personal interests or aspirations. And maybe it's fabrication, but maybe it's art. You know, it could be a, a number of different things. And so we've helped to kind of uh, refine the vision. And the Jesse Combs Foundation is there to it's got three pillars that we stand on. It's to educate, inspire and empower women to do what they're trying to accomplish, whether it's, again, it could be something in art or it could be something in fabrication or racing or whatever. And the uh, the circles that Jesse ran in, you know, I mean, we were talking about motorcycles a little while ago. Well, I was fortunate enough where I was friends with Jesse, not only in Ultra 4, but also in motorcycles, you know, in different in different avenues of, of the hot rod life or the motorcycle life or whatever. And so that was always kind of fun because I could go to EJS and you'd see Jesse and hang out with her there. And then I'd go to Handbuilt, you know, a month later and you'd see her there and hang out with her there, you know, in motorcycles. But all those different circles have really been amazing as they've come together. And that's really what the board's about is you have all these different circles. So, you know, if you can envision just you have an off-road community, Ultra 4, Baja, whatever, and you have um, maybe a fabrication community and you have motorcycle, hot rod community, and you have maybe even TV. We've seen some of that too from her, her time being on TV. And all these people are kind of meshing together and coming together and helping each other out. And uh, the goal is ultimately to be able to have scholarships or support other groups. Um, Jesse was part of the real deal with Teresa, and that has been a great, great organization that has, um, you know, has tried to do very similar things to, to what we have going on, and we'll be there to support them. You know, and there's there's some other things uh, 
in that regard for uh, whether it's real deal or for scholarships for ourselves. We have another one. We have a fund. Uh, somebody's funding a couple of scholarships for motors, you know, to, to become mechanics. And that's pretty cool. Uh, but we have a couple things coming where, you know, we want to do uh, something with a chopper build and an all women chopper build for motorcycle to help uh, do a fundraiser. So everything's donated and do a fundraiser and, and uh, give back to the community as a whole. We have something really fun. Dave has stepped up and uh, he's helping us um, with some fundraising effort for King of the Hammers. And it's similar to a walkathon. So if you can remember a walkathon back in the days of school where you could pledge, you know, you go to your neighbor and say, hey, so can I get a dollar a mile? or 50 cents a mile or something like that. I don't have all the details yet, but I'm really close. And it sounds like we're going to have something put together to where you could pick your favorite racer and however many miles they drive in the King of the Hammers would be how much you give. You can give a penny a mile. I don't care. But if you can give something and you think of all the racers that are out there and it will kind of be a promotional thing about Jesse and Jesse Combs Foundation and uh, the racer, you pledge to a racer and however many miles that racer pledge you know, goes, that's your pledge will go towards the Jesse Combs Foundation. What an as awesome a idea. Isn't that great? That's a Dave Cole original. Man. So, I went to him uh, in SEMA and said, hey, we would really like to have a presence there. I kind of told him what we had going on. He's like, how can I help? I was like, we'd really just like to have a presence there. And he's like, you got it. You know, you got a vendor spot. And uh, he he actually said, he's like, so what are you thinking? You know, what kind of fundraising or whatever are you going to do? And it's like, you know, I almost see it as much because there's some efforts we're going to have that are going to be more about uh, a brand acknowledgement, you know, getting the brand out there and, and getting people to recognize who we are and what's going on as a, as a foundation. Not we are as people, but as the foundation, you know, and, and get growth. And it, SEMA was great for us. Uh, it was a great fundraising opportunity that I didn't even anticipate, but it was huge. Pete, it Dexterous Engineering does a deal at uh, Christian Sosa's shop, who's a metal fabricator for motorcycles, and it's called Hammers and Hops. And they have all these people come in and donate all this stuff, and then they do raffle tickets, and then they raffle it off and give it away. Well, Pete and his efforts with Christian and, and a whole bunch of other people that supported them, they raised $12,000 this year and handed it to us in a bag at the end of the event. It was awesome. I mean, Christian has a great shop. It's a really cool place. Uh, we got Dave and JT and Alan and a few others from Ultra 4 World to go out there. Travis was out there. And it was fun to kind of see here you have all these Ultra 4 guys wearing King of the Hammer, Hammer sweatshirts hanging out with guys wearing Dixon flannels and Dickies and, you know, work boots and whatever. Well, and, so that, that was cool. and those lines are blurring by the day. They are. Yes, they like, are. Like, like radically yeah. and, and drastically blurring by the day. Oh, yeah, man, so yeah. They, you got to give Dave Golden huge credit for yeah. that, uh, to, to put that, I guess, that idea out there and you guys to take that and run with that. I'm really pumped up. Now i got to really kind of game plan uh, who who i got to put my money behind. I mean, Yeah, who's your driver? Well, I know who it better be for 4500 yeah, right. Um, well, in 4,400, you know, Cody Wagner, he's got someone else driving for him this year. So at least yep. I'll get a chance to spend some money on Cam Steele if I go that route. Love uh, it. You know, Jesse Haynes isn't, you know, Jesse, he doesn't have luck. He only goes about five miles or seven miles. Yeah. So there's some guys that you definitely want to, you know, stay away from because they just don't do very well at the hammers. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, if you're willing to spend, you know, if the race is 250 miles, and you're willing to spend like 230 or so, maybe Tom Ways. <laughs> Brutal. <laughs> They're going to kill me. They're going to kill me. Now, you know, you know, Lauren, Lauren's usually good for about 150 to 175 unless he wins. So it's either you're. <laughs> yeah, it's all of it. it it's, yeah. it's either going to put in a little or you're going to get all of it. Um, Miller, he's going to go all the way, Slauson all the way. Um, yeah. You got Waylon in a new car, right? Yeah, but you know, I'm going to take Bailey over him. Uh, I think, Uh-oh. I think Bailey gets it done. 
Yeah, I got to I got to co-drive for Bailey once. She definitely gets it done in that car. Oh, uh, yeah, she's she's hot shit. I love, I love cheering for her. You know, is Brian uh is Brian going to co-drive for her this year? Is that the deal? I don't know what the plan is to be honest with you. I hadn't uh hadn't talked. I think that uh, I'd like I'd like to see Brian in a new car. Not not that I dislike his old car, but I know that they are uh they're talking about that a little bit. So whether it's his old car or new car, I think his old car sold and is gone. Yeah, I thought it went to Europe or was going Yeah, to it Europe did. It went overseas. Like I don't know if it's actually left yet, but I don't think he's going to have that by February. So uh, I'd like to see them thrash and put something together real quick and have him have him drive that. Although I saw Waylon's car for sale today. so it's, uh, I, I think he, was he, he's wanting uh, 150k for it. That's what and I saw. With a pile of spares, and it is worth... Man, it's worth 180 or 190. I don't, I don't know. I mean, if you want to walk into the Campbell, you know, lab and go take a, take a stallion out, that is, that is how you do it. And that's a, that's a winning car. Yeah, that's a good opportunity. Driver. Man, we can, we can certainly brainstorm and strategize all day long about 4,400, uh, which everyone will know, but let's, let's, Take a little quick jump before we wrap this thing up, but uh, race strategy: forty five hundred King of the Hammers twenty twenty. Matt Howell, Adam Shear, they're, they're going for the win. Got any idea how you guys are going to make that happen? Man, we're just going to have to really. Uh, thankfully, we have a great team in the shop, and they'll peel that car apart. It's already kind of underway now, and uh, uh, we really didn't have any major issues uh, like with the car as far as crashing or wrecking it like the year before. We were in, flopped it and had to ride it, and you know, worked together with Jimmy Jack and a couple other racers to get through our, our issues up there. But we didn't have that this year, so the car's in pretty good shape, uh, but it needs to be reprepped, and then uh, we need to. Uh, we need to just be our reliable selves. You know, I don't like to, I don't like to qualify first. I like to have a, a something to hunt for, but at the same time, you don't want to be so far back that you're having to work hard to get back in there. So, you know, you kind of, you kind of pick what your threshold is, but, uh, you know, there's some fast guys out there. There's Dustin Friesen's always fast. You have the 88 car. I'm not sure if uh, Gerald's going to bring that back or not. Um, Justin Hall's fast. Jimmy Jack's fast. Uh, Durant's is fast. I can keep going down the list, but you know, there's a lot of really reliable guys and, and reliable racers. So I think we're just going to have to be smart and, and pick our pick our moments i think we pushed the car a lot last year in the desert section you know we went from 12th to fourth overall and uh, uh and i was trying to put down a little bit of distance between us and some of the others that were behind us just to make sure that we we didn't you know lose it somewhere else or to give ourselves a buffer uh so you know we'll probably take a similar ap- approach and uh and just try to be steady eddie and reliable well, I know one thing that those other teams do not have, have all that litany of guys that uh, are going to be up there that you're competing against that are veritable, you know, uh, contenders is they don't have Team Texas behind them and the, the, basically the tribe and the, the tribe or Team Texas, however you want to re- refer to it. It's a community here in Texas of, yeah. so it's a support network. And when every, you know, everyone's taking vacation, everyone's out there, husbands, wives, kids and, there's no lack of hands on deck when you're at uh, an ultra four race for team Texas and there's enough cars, everyone, you know, teams together. And, and so when you have the ability to take that piece of your strategy and that piece of your, you know, the puzzle and know that it's taken care of and squared away, it allows you to go be a little bit more creative on course and push a little bit harder because you know that all those other things are taken care of. The I's are dotted, the T's are crossed. And man, yep. I, I'll be pulling for you because I know who's in your corner. I mean, you, you literally have everybody in your corner. Everybody that's, yeah. in, that's in North Texas uh, will, will be there ensuring that your bases are covered. 
No, thanks for that. Yeah, it's it's great to be able to put on the helmet and get in the car and you stop thinking about all these other things. Who's at pit, what, what you know, whichever number or which tires are where, fuel where. We talked about that the night before or two days before and everybody shows up and they have their, their task at hand and everybody just delivers. And it's it, that's a pretty awesome feeling. It's a uh, it's the, the 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 driver gets to take some of the the great rush or whatever by actually bringing that thing across the stage to a finish but it's always better when you know you have the whole team crawling up on the car it takes it takes so many people to pull this stuff off so and they're it, just glad that you have parking in Hammertown i mean that's that's, <laughs> that's the goal that is the goal <laughs> that's the goal well, Matt, thank you so much for, uh, for sitting down and taking time out of your, uh, your evening to knock this out with me and, uh, just sit here conversing BS about, uh, everything that's kind of ultra four and you and who Matt Howell is and, and your family and man, you know, your, your successes, your, in your business, your success with, uh, helping Adam at tribe 16 now and what the future like looks like there, man. Thank you so much. I'm sorry it took us, uh, you know, two takes to get this done. You know, I, I want to give the backstory on this episode 12. When I came out to do the talent tank, I, I told everyone, Hey, I'm going to do 12. And in that Monday before Thanksgiving and as the week before Thanksgiving realized that the guy I had lined up for 12, it was not going to happen. It was, he had a, a, a birth that, that, uh, you know, they were expecting the child. They just weren't expecting it at that time. So, uh, it kind of threw everything, you know, out, out the window. So I jumped in a car and I drove up to see you guys in Fort Worth and grabbed you and Adam. And we went to the new tribe digs, amazing digs. And, and we recorded and the audio was absolutely terrible as, and, and you guys know, I'm not a techie guy, right? I'm not the tech guy. I've self-taught on this. So I didn't realize that, you know, my gear that I have set up for this podcast is very much geared towards the remote interview and it did not work well. It did not bode well when we sat down at the new tribe digs and did this. And I get home, I get back to Houston, you know, five hour drive. You know, I've had some meetings that morning, got up there to you. You flew in from Florida. We knock it out. I drive back. I get back to Houston at one in the morning and then uh, I live listen to it almost immediately before I went to bed. And I was like, it's junk. It's trash. It's too echoey. The reverb. And then I learned a new term called mic bleed where my voice is heard on your mics and your voices is heard on my mics. And oh man. So, well, we knocked it out, Matt. That was fun. Doing it live was fun. I thought. Oh no, it absolutely was. We had, we had, there was beers. I mean, everybody yeah. missed. We got a pre, pre-christen the, uh, the establishment, even though I missed the, uh, the party this past weekend. But Matt, thank you for coming in, uh, and, and logging on and, and getting on the show. Thank you for accepting my invitation. I love hanging out with you. I love conversing with you. You're an interesting, interesting fella. Love your Thanks, family. Man. Love what you've got going. I will be pulling for you in 4500 class here in, in February. Uh, but in the meantime, Stay to it, you know, nose to the grindstone, man. Yeah, we're, we're going to try and thanks for having me. I mean, I think this was an awesome uh, opportunity. And like I said, I was flattered when you uh, extended the invitation. I thought that was pretty awesome. So looking forward to seeing you on the lake bed. Well, badass, we're out. Thanks. You made it. Another episode consumed. If you like the listen, please go give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcast and consider writing a quick review either there or over on the Facebook page. Thank you for tuning in to this wild dive into the talent tank. Wyatt. Out. Thank you for listening and taking a dive into the Talent Tank. Please like and subscribe on Instagram at the Talent Tank or our website, thetalenttank.com.